great this morning. We'll start at verse 1. We're going to study the first 26 verses of chapter 8. So the second book of the New Testament, right after Matthew, comes Mark. And then chapter 8, verse 1, we'll start reading there this morning. If you need a Bible, we want you to follow along and read with us. And so just raise your hand and we'll slip you a Bible and um, so you can read with us as we go through this text here in Mark chapter 8, the first 26 verses um, as we go through it systematically. So Mark chapter 8, if you'll turn there this morning, second book of the New Testament, chapter 8 is where we'll begin reading. And of course, last week, if you were here, we left off seeing Jesus going into that area that is called Decapolis, and that's north and east of where he had been spending most of his time and where he would spend most of his ministry, that is in the Galilee region, where the Sea of Galilee is. And so he would go in that area, which we know today is Syria, and extends over into the area of what uh, we know the country is Jordan. And as he's in that area, Decapolis, as we saw in chapter 7, he went up in that um, area of Sidon and Tyre, Tyre, and then he would go eastward, uh, north of Galilee, in where that uh, area is um, of Decapolis. And we read, as we ended chapter 7, there was brought to Jesus one who was a deaf mute. And Jesus touched his ears and his tongue, and that one was healed, and he was able to hear clearly and to speak correctly. And we talked about last week how spiritually for you and for me, how important it is that we are hearing clearly, that we're hearing clearly truth and the scriptures and, and godly wisdom. And as we do hear very clearly and take it in, then we're able to speak correctly to others who need to hear the word of God, who need to hear godly wisdom. And so um, here is this one that is healed. And it's interesting, as the word was spread that he was healed, the people were saying in the last verse of chapter 7, verse 37, that he has done all things well. And, and I like that because he does indeed do all things well. And I hope that you and I, as we come into this place this morning, that we really believe that in our hearts, that he does all things well in every area of your life as you allow him to just touch those areas that perhaps there's difficulties or there's challenges or you're not sh quite sure which direction to go. Know this, that you can trust in the Lord and you can just give him those things in your lives as you seek him and know that he does all things well. Matter of fact, the promise given to us in Romans chapter 8 that he promises to work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So let's begin to look at chapter 8 as again Jesus is in that area of Decapolis and in verse 1 we read in those days the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat and if I send them away hungry to their own houses they will faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. And so let's pray. Father, we ask that as we have come into this place, that we desire to be fed by you, spiritual food, be fed the word of God. And I pray that there would be hunger within us, Lord, in our hearts and in our souls, because you said, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they will be filled. And we know this morning that you desire to fill us with your wisdom, with your comfort, with instruction, 
Lord, that you desire to just touch our hearts in every way this morning. So do that work. Lord, continue to just minister to our hearts as we open our ears to you so that we can hear very clearly. And Lord, we may leave this place speaking correctly to others the wonderful things that you've showed us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the miracle that Jesus is about to perform is called the feeding of the 4,000. It's very, very similar to the miracle that we saw in Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000, as we read it earlier, it took place in that area of Galilee, just north of the Sea of Galilee and the hillsides there. This account here in chapter 8 takes place again in that area of Decapolis, which is east and north of the Sea of Galilee. And that area of Decapolis was known for its 10 Greek cities. It's a very beautiful place if you go there. It's very uh, fertile. It's uh, very green in that area, very lush. It's mountainous. And it's located um, in a place where Jesus would be, where many people would come out of those, those Greek cities that you can go and see some of the ruins of those cities even today. And so some commentators, when when they read chapter 8 here, that they will tell you and me that the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000, which we're just about ready to read about, are really two different versions of the same feeding or two different versions of the same incident. But Mark's account here in gospel, as well as Matthew's gospel, is very careful to point out that these are two different miracles. These are two different feedings. And Jesus himself is going to point that out, as we're going to see as we continue to read. He's going to refer to um, you know, chapter 6 and chapter 8 here as two different events as having significance in the lives of his disciples. So chapter 8 is a different feeding, a different incident, separate from the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw in chapter 6. So remember that Jesus here, he's at the height of his popularity with the people. He's in a different area. He's in the area of those 10 Greek cities, Decapolis. The multitudes are becoming very great. And the people had come because they wanted to see Jesus. They had heard that he had been doing miracles. Matter of fact, as we end chapter 7, as we read about him healing that deaf mute, even though Jesus took him away from the crowds and told them not to tell anyone of the healing, the news spread very quickly. And the people are now streaming out of the cities of the Decapolis to come and see Jesus here in the, the countryside. They want to be touched by him. No doubt they're probably bringing the sick, just as we have seen and read about that the people were doing in the Galilee region. Uh, they're wanting to hear him and see him and be touched by him. And so as they come out to see Jesus, they've been out there for three days. They were with him, um, watching him do miracles, if he was at that time. He's probably as he did with the feeding of the 5,000, was teaching this multitude for these three days. And after being out there for that length of time, Jesus knows that they're hungry and he has compassion for them. And, and once again, we have that word related to Jesus. He had compassion on the multitudes. And always it seemed when we read Jesus and he looked out on the multitudes, that his heart was moved with compassion. He would look at the, the people as sheep without a shepherd, and he would extend 
that compassion with doing works of ministry and, and healing and teaching them. And here he has compassion once again. And he has compassion because of their physical needs. And it's interesting how considerate Jesus always is. Sometimes I know for me that, that if I'm not careful, and, and there are times and moments where I can be insensitive to the needs of others, and we really don't see that with our Lord. He was always sensitive to the needs of others, and Jesus knew that if he sent the crowds away, many of them coming from long distances, he knew that they, they wouldn't have the strength to make it home. So Jesus decides that he's going to feed the crowd, verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. Now the response of the disciples to Jesus here intrigues me a bit because it wasn't that long ago actually just two chapters ago that they witnessed jesus feed five thousand with just a few loaves and fish and the disciples after the people had eaten and they were full they were stuffed they couldn't eat anymore the disciples went about and they picked up the remaining fragments that were left behind and they filled up 12 baskets of leftovers 12 disciples, 12 baskets. So they each had a basket of leftovers, and obviously they ended up with a whole lot more than what they began with. And so you would have thought that the disciples would think back to that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and at this time, as there's this great multitude gathered once again, the people are hungry. Jesus doesn't want to send them away because he knows that they're not going to make it home. They're, they're hungry and they're going to faint. And they have a few loaves. And you think that the disciples would say, okay, here we go again. Watch this. Here are seven loaves. Now watch the miracle. But what they are saying is, well, how are we going to feed them? And I'm sure that Jesus was hoping that they would regard his past faithfulness as a promise to meet their present need. But the disciples are slow to believe. And I know for me, and I'll speak on my behalf, that there are times where I can be like those disciples. I know that there have been times in my life where the Lord has shown his faithfulness to me. The Lord has met my need. He has worked wonders and especially when I've been in the wilderness spiritually. I've had a need, or something's come up, or a difficult circumstance. And, and I think, wow, as I watch the Lord work, and I read His promises, and I see that Jesus is faithful to His Word. He, he meets my present need, and, and that can happen in my life. And I think, oh Lord, you're so good, and you're so faithful, and I know that your Word is true. But then time will pass. And once again, a need comes up, whether it's concerning my family or the ministry. And I can be like the disciples, Lord, how's this going to work out? And I forget about his past faithfulness and he, that he desires to work again in my present situation. So how did the Lord feed the 4,000? Well, much the same way he fed the 5,000 as we read in verse 6. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away 
Verse 10, immediately got into a boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So again, taking just a, a few loaves and a few fish, blessing them and feeding a large multitude of people and gathering the disciples at the end when everybody was full, had eaten all that they wanted to eat, they gathered more frag- fragments at the end than, than what they started with. And in the feeding of the 5,000, as I mentioned to you, there was 12 baskets gathered of leftovers. And the word for basket there in chapter 6 is a word uh, from the Greek that signifies a typical basket that was used by the Jews. Now, this particular word for basket here in Mark chapter 8, in the feeding of the 4,000, it's a different Greek word. And it indicates a larger basket. That's why it's translated large basket. It's a larger basket that the Gentiles would use. Seven large baskets were collected, showing God's abundant provision. So how are we going to to feed these, these people? Well, how many loaves do you have? We have seven. Well, give me what you have, and I'll take it and bless it and multiply it. Very important lesson that we talked about in the feeding of the 5,000 that I think is worth mentioning once again. That in our lives, you give the Lord what you have. And to you, you might think, well, it isn't very much. But you put it in His hands. And you watch Him bless it and multiply it. The Lord says to you and to me, just give me what you have, even if you think that it isn't much, and watch what I will do with your life. And many of us, we want God to work in our lives. We pray that he would work in our lives, but here's the key. You must give him your life. You must give him your life, all of your life. We bring the bread, he'll multiply it. We can fill the jars with water, John chapter 2, right? But he's the one that turns it to wine, which speaks of joy. When you see and and want to, to see something accomplished, in your life for the Lord and see Him work. Give Him what you have. Give Him your gifts, your abilities, your life, your heart, and watch Him work in a very powerful way. Multiply what you have given to Him to bring glory and honor to God. But there is, I believe, another lesson for us here that we didn't really talk about and touch on in the feeding of the 5,000 that I think is important, and it's simply this. The Lord, as we look at His miracles, Indeed, they were done on the physical level. He was healing people of every kind of sickness. He was casting demons out of those who were demon-possessed. He, he was feeding those with miracle f- feedings as he would just take a few loaves and fish and, and feed multiple people, thousands of people. But you see, the Lord is never happy with people just remaining at that level. Oh, it's a tremendous blessing that he brought to them, physical healing and feeding them and freeing them from demons. But here's the thing. He doesn't want us just to be focused on the physical. He wants these disciples. He he desires that these in the multitude, and for us here at Calvary Chapel to see also that there's a far more important lesson that he desires to give to us. And that is, yeah, he can provide bread for the body, and that's a blessing when he does. But he provides more importantly for our spiritual hunger as well. You see, in John's gospel, after defeating the 5,000, and I know that I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating at this time in our study, that when Jesus came in that boat and 
he came the next day to Capernaum that the people were gathered and they were looking for him. And he said, you're only looking for me because you're hungry once again. And what you are to desire is the bread that comes from heaven. And he told the multitude in John chapter 6, I am the bread sent down from heaven. I am the bread of life. And if you want to keep your spirit strong, then come and take of me. Feed upon me. Now, you recall in the temptation of Jesus by Satan that Mark just briefly touched on in Mark chapter 1, but further of the story, more details given to us of those temptations that Satan brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4. And you recall that in the temptation of Jesus by Satan, that it was Satan that came to Jesus and said, hey, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And how did Jesus answer? He answered by quoting Deuteronomy, the word of God. In each case that Satan brought a temptation. But in that case, Jesus answered the devil by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, it's not enough for your, human, your humanity, your life, and in your life, if all you are interested in and all you are seeking to provide is food, shelter, luxuries, possessions, the visible things of life. Now, we know that we need food. We need shelters. There are things that we have in life, and we can enjoy those things. But if that is your priority and that's all you focus on, then your spirit is going to shrivel up and become weak and actually become subject to all kinds of attack and, and depression and discouragement and weakness spiritually. And you ultimately will not be satisfied and fulfilled. And that's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And if you believe in me, you'll never hunger or thirst again. That is in your heart and in your soul. And if you want to keep your spirit strong and be strong in those difficult circumstances of your life, you must feed, I must feed upon the Lord Jesus. He is the one which will provide the strength that you and I need, the comfort, the wisdom, the direction, the joy, the peace in our hearts. So we learn of Him. We worship Him. We be thankful to Him. And we feed upon Him. You and I need spiritual bread that comes from Jesus, just as we need the physical bread for our bodies daily. And if we don't eat physically, then we become weak, don't we, physically? And if we don't feed and take in upon the word of God, we will become weak spiritually. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So if you want to be strong spiritually, we must, we must be in the word daily, consistently, constantly, and believe the word, be submitted to the word. So Jesus feeds the crowd of 4,000. They're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He sends the multitude away. He gets into a boat. He's going to go back into the Galilee region as he's crossing the Sea of Galilee. In verse 11, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. So the, the Pharisees wanted him to perform a sign. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, what has Jesus been doing? He just fed the 5,000 not long ago in the Galilee region. 
He's been healing people of every kind of sickness and disease, opening the eyes of the blind. He's, he's causing those who are deaf to be able to hear again, those who are lame to be able to walk, those who have leprosy to, to be cleansed. Those things that have never been done before, those who are full of demons to be freed, and the people were amazed. They said, we've never seen anything like this before. And here comes the religious elite, the Pharisees. They have already been coming against the ministry of Jesus. They've been disputing with Jesus. They're upset with him. And they come along and they say, we want to see a sign, perform a sign. Now, we need to understand really what the Pharisees were were requesting, what they're really asking. It wasn't that they were asking for another miracle of the type that Jesus had already been doing, which indeed is incredible, the things that he had been doing. I mean, he even raised a dead girl. That he robbed death from Jairus' daughter, as we read previously in Mark's Gospel. But you see, in those days... The religious leaders, as they were looking for Messiah, the Pharisees were asking for some dramatic sign. For example, calling down fire from heaven like Elijah did. Or perhaps parting the Jordan River and stopping the flow of the river like in the days of Joshua. Maybe perhaps parting the Sea of Galilee. So these religious elite, this sect called the Pharisees, were looking for some supernatural, spectacular miracle to happen at the hands of the Messiah in order to prove that indeed you're the Messiah. Why don't you roll up the sky like a scroll so we can see the throne of God? That's what they were asking for. So give us a sign from heaven. But it says that they were testing him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek after a sign? No sign is going to be given to this generation. In the other Gospels, it's recorded that he would respond to them by saying, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign that's going to be given to you. The sign of my resurrection. Not to just this generation, but to every generation. And we need to understand that Jesus did not perform miracles just to satisfy the curiosity of the crowds. Or to satisfy the curiosity or the request of the Pharisees. The purpose of his miracles were always in helping those who had need. He used his power to minister to the needs of the people. He didn't use his power to just minister in, you know, doing something spectacular or showing off or make some, you know, great display and draw attention of people to himself. He always did it in a way that glorified the Father. And here in verse 11, that word testing is better translated tempting him. The Pharisees are tempting Jesus to perform a miraculous sign, just as Satan did in that wilderness temptation. And this demand for a special sign was an extreme example, I think, of the arrogance and the pride and the rebellion of Pharisees towards Jesus. In a way, what they were saying is, well, you've done some miracles, but... We want to really see some real spectacular sign. Really show us something. We know that as Jesus is going to mention 
a warning and give a warning to his disciples as we read on about Herod. It was Herod that had heard of Jesus and the miracles that he did. And Herod wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him. When Jesus stood before him in the trials that Jesus went through, he went through a series of trials there before his crucifixion, went before Pilate, and then he was sent to Herod. Herod really wanted to see Jesus. And, and when Jesus stood before Herod, it was Herod that was saying, all right, perform some miracle. Kind of like do some fancy you know, trick for me. But Jesus wouldn't do it. He didn't perform a miracle. He didn't even speak to Herod. He refused to perform some miracle just to satisfy people's curiosity for the supernatural spectacular. Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes people that emphasize and really prioritize and always seem to be looking for signs and wonders, they will say, well, if there isn't any miracles being manifested in your church, in your life, then God really isn't working. And that isn't true. I believe God does work and he does miracles and he does heal just like he did 2,000 years ago. Of course I do. But Jesus was more concerned, and this is what we need to understand, about the healing of the heart, changing hearts. And you know what? We have a room full of people here this morning that the greatest miracle of all has happened, and that is a changed heart. And you're forgiven. And regeneration has happened. And we can see that we are a new creation in Christ. That's the greatest miracle of all that has taken place. But those who are always looking for signs, and of course it's wonderful when the Lord does work, in the physical, works miracles. Of course it is. But if that's all we're looking for and prioritizing, I don't know if that's always healthy and we need to be careful because we read in the scriptures that there's going to be a man who will be coming on the scene. I believe that it, it could be soon. And this one is going to be showing and doing all kinds of signs and wonders. And if a person's faith is geared towards seeing some spectacular sign or miracle or whatever, they're going to be in trouble at that time. Because when the Antichrist comes, he's going to be coming, as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, with all types of signs and wonders and lying miracles, deceiving people by those signs. He is able, Revelation chapter 13 tells us, he's going to be able to call down fire from heaven. And if that is the basis of which you place truth on, you need to understand that Satan can do miracles too. We see that in the scriptures. When it was... Moses that came to Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, let my people go. And he threw his staff down, remember, and turned into a snake. What did the magicians of Pharaoh do? They threw their staffs down and they turned into snakes. When Moses turned water into, you know, blood, it was the magicians of Pharaoh that found some water that wasn't polluted and they turned it into blood. When Moses called up the frogs, it was magicians of Pharaoh that called up more frogs. It was only Moses that could take away those frogs as he prayed to the Lord. So Satan, he's not the opposite equal of God. We need to understand this, but he is powerful. And he can deceive people with signs and wonders that he is able to perform, and he does perform those things. And it's not healthy to just put your faith and trust in signs that a person might be able to produce. It's real important that you listen to the words that they're saying. And it's important that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and trust in what the Word of God has to say. Because what the Word of God declares to you and to me, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I hope we understand that. 
So Jesus here is they are looking for some spectacular sign. He says, no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of my resurrection. The greatest sign of all, that Jesus rose from the grave and he's alive. And now we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, and he left them and getting into a boat again, he departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have no bread? Now we know from Scripture that leaven, yeast, is a biblical picture of evil, of sin. We see that all throughout the Scriptures. You recall when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, he's writing about sin that was in the church, and he said, Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf? So you need to purge out the leaven. We see a picture of it in the Old Testament when they would celebrate Passover. And then immediately after Passover, the children of Israel were told to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is, you, for those six days, are to eat bread that doesn't have leaven or or yeast in it. And during that feast, what they were to do is go throughout their cupboards and they were to take anything that had yeast in it, take it out of the house. And we talked about how as Christians, make sure that in our own homes, that there's nothing there that would cause us to sin. The things that you're watching, the things that you're taking in, the things that that you're participating in, it needs to all go. And dads and moms, make sure that your home is a place where the presence and the priority of the Lord is there and spoken of. And so here, leaven, as we go through Scripture, is a picture of evil, of sin. And so Jesus says, take heed, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples say, leaven, oh no. He knows that we forgot to bring some bread and we forgot the bagels. And again, the disciples not understanding what Jesus is speaking of. Here they're thinking of the material, physical realm once again. Jesus is speaking on what? The spiritual realm. In the Gospels, we see that happening frequently. Whenever Jesus spoke of the spiritual realm, people oftentimes would confuse it with the material, physical world. We see it in John chapter 3, don't we? Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, he's going, how can that be? I mean, can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? It's like Nicodemus was saying, help me. And Jesus said, oh, Nicodemus, aren't you the master teacher of Israel? Don't you know that that which is born of the flesh is flesh? That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. Nicodemus was trying to figure it out physically. John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman that Jesus is talking to there at the well. And and Jesus is saying, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give to you, then you will never thirst again. And she's saying, where is you know, this water so I can draw from it? She's stuck on the, the physical side of it. Jesus is talking about the spiritual side. If you drink of me, and, and then in another place in John's gospel, Jesus said, if you thirst, come to me and drink. He's talking to the spiritual realm. So the question is for all of us is where have we been drinking? particularly when we feel dry and parched in our hearts and in our soul. Jesus says, come drink of me. Chapter 6 of John, I've already made reference to that this morning. Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, he said to the multitudes, you can have no part of me. 
And the people said, this is a hard saying. They're thinking physically. How can we understand it? And the crowds began to turn away from Jesus. He was speaking of the spiritual realm. And the people couldn't see past the material world. He said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. So we can get so caught up in the material, physical world, and the Lord's desire for us is that we gain an eternal spiritual perspective and priority. But like the disciples, we get all hung up on the material, even in our spiritual walk. And oftentimes we consider ourselves to be blessed only if we can see the material blessings, you know, the miracles we see physically. And again, those are a blessing. But remember that those things, yes, they can be a tremendous blessing. They are temporal the Lord wants us, our focus, to shift from the temporal to the eternal, doesn't he? From the material to the spiritual. That's why studying the word of God is so important to us. That's why being the men and women of worship is important. That's why that we stay close to him and abide in him. Because my focus begins to shift from the spiritual to the eternal. Not focusing on the material. It should never be the mindset of any of us here in this place that name the name of Jesus, that we have the mindset of the world that says, whoever has the most toys at the end wins. Uh-uh. Whoever lived for the Lord fully wins and storing up your treasures in heaven because that's eternal. But Jesus, being aware of it, in verse 17, said to them, Why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hard and have an eyes? Do you not see and have an ears? Do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it that you do not understand? So he's warning the disciples of the evil of the Pharisees and Herod and the type of spirit that is able to permeate and infect others. I'm not talking about the fact that you forgot bread and your understanding should have been based on seeing who I uh, and what I've already done, who I've ministered to. Don't you remember how I fed the 5,000 and the 4,000? Don't you see? Don't you hear? Haven't you seen my faithfulness in providing and don't you understand? that it is a promise for my continual love and care for you. And then he came in verse 22, the Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Interesting miracle here, because it's the only miracle recorded where there was a gradual healing. You see, the first time that Jesus laid his hand on him, there was partial restoration of the sight given to this man. It was only after a second time that Jesus laid his hands on this man that he could see clearly. So it is a case of gradual healing, and it's the only one that we have recorded in the ministry of Jesus. Now, people have looked at this little story, these verses, this little vignette recorded for us here in Mark's gospel. They've been perplexed by it. There have been those who are puzzled over it. There are even those who have a problem with it because there are 
this, this, this individual, there is this man who had to be touched twice by the Lord before he received his sight wholly, before he could see clearly. And there are those that will make the case or the comment, well, apparently the Lord didn't get it right the first time. He blundered. He didn't finish the work. He had to go back and correct his mistake. And I personally have a hard time with that. Because even though you and I make mistakes, and for me, I make plenty of mistakes, I may not get it right the first time. Sometimes I don't even get it right the second time. I make mistakes concerning others as I minister to them. And I may not get it right the first time, and I have to go back, and I have to touch that situation, that challenge again. Because the Lord is growing me, and He's teaching me, and He's correcting me. But you see, Jesus never made a mistake. And I've heard comments even from teachers saying, well, Jesus had to touch this man twice because he didn't completely heal him the first time, and it speaks of, of his humanity, and on and on as they stumbled through it. But I personally reject it. Because even though Jesus, yes, he was fully man, he was fully God, he was the perfect lamb of God, and I don't believe that our Lord here made a mistake, or he goofed, or he didn't get it right the first time. And if we believe that is the case, here's the thing. Satan will take it and he'll blow the doors open on that. And he will blow the doors wide open and begin to whisper in your ear, see, Jesus, he does make mistakes. And you see, maybe he's making this mistake right now and working in that difficult situation in your life or where you're at presently and he can't see clearly which way you are to go. He's goofing up. You can't totally trust the Lord when it comes to you seeing clearly and you knowing what his desire is for you as he touches your life to bring healing to you, to give direction, strength, whatever it might be. And Satan would love for any of us to believe that, that we can't fully trust in the Lord when it comes to him touching any area of our lives or giving us direction. And I want us this morning to look at this story and our hearts be open and our ears open to what the Spirit might say to us this morning. Let's look at it carefully. Notice that Jesus comes to Bethsaida. The one who is blind was brought to him by some friends so that he can be touched by the Lord. Perhaps in your life, there was a friend that brought you to Jesus so that you could be touched by him. I know that it was my sister that brought me to a place where I really heard the scriptures and the gospel for the first time. And all of us, before we came to the Lord, we were blind spiritually. We couldn't see. The scripture tells us that Satan is the God little g of this age, has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, as he speaks that we've all sinned, we have all turned aside. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Before we were saved, we were all blind. Perhaps it was a friend, a parent, a co-worker, whoever brought you to a Bible study or church or somewhere where you heard the gospel. Maybe they brought the gospel to you so that you could be touched by the Lord. And it's my hope and prayer that we would be like these folks who cared enough about their friend to take the time and make the effort to bring those that we know to Jesus so that they can be touched by the Lord, so they can see clearly the things of God. I love that testimony of that man in John chapter 9 
You know the story, he was born blind and Jesus went and spat on the ground, made mud and wiped it in his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool. And a man did that and he came up seeing. And after that miracle there in Jerusalem, the religious leaders are very upset at Jesus. They're plotting to have him put to death. They take that man who was born blind that can see and they're just really being hard to him and saying, who healed you and what healed you and how did this happen? And I love the response of that man who was blind but was then healed by Jesus. He said, I don't know, but I do know one thing, that I was blind and now I see. And that's a testimony that we have as we were blind, but now we see because of the Lord's touch in our lives, the saving grace of our Lord. So they brought this man to Jesus, and Jesus, as we have seen him do previously, took this man aside, verse 23, out of town and away from the crowds. And Jesus didn't want this circus mentality. He wanted to devote his full attention to this man. And how I appreciate, I mean, think about this. Not only did he have compassion on the multitudes, but Jesus had compassion on individuals. He always took the time to minister one-on-one, take people aside and to minister to their needs. And I hope that you and I do as well. So Jesus led him out of town, and Jesus spit in his eyes and put his hands on him. I wonder what he thought when Jesus did that. But nonetheless, Jesus did. He asked that man, do you see anything? In verse 24, he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Isn't that interesting response? Jesus touched this man. He saw, but he saw men like trees. They were fuzzy. People looked fuzzy, blurry. John the Apostle of Love writes in his first epistle, He who loves his brother abides in the light. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Jesus went on to say that we are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those who persecute us. And oftentimes, we have experienced, many of us, if not all of us in this room, we've experienced the Lord's touching. Our eyes have been opened because of Jesus. We love the Lord. We have the desire to even serve Him. But there is something else that goes with being touched by the Lord. Because not only are we to love God, but we're to love others. And that's not a suggestion that comes from our Lord. It's a commandment, isn't it? And oftentimes, we will look at others not clearly, Not the way that the Lord wants us to. This man says, I I see, but I see men like trees. And you see, we've been saved. We've been touched by the Lord. We're blind, but now we see. But sometimes when we look at others, we see men as trees. I mean, they stump us. We have them bark at us. They want us to leave, whatever it might be. (laughs) We, We love God, but them... But them, Lord, and we're not seeing clearly. They're like trees to you and to me. And Lord, I know what your word says, that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love my neighbor. And I know that can be hard. So what do we do? Lord, touch me again. Will you touch me again? And I believe that the key for us is when we see others fuzzy is to look up to heaven like this man, verse 25. Jesus touched them again, made them look up. That gives us a picture of the posture of prayer. How do we love our enemies? How do we 
pray for those who persecute us? How do we get rid of the bitterness and jealousy and hardness of hearts towards someone? What we do is we give it to the Lord and we pray. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. We look up and we give it to the Lord and allow the Lord to do that work in our heart, that supernatural work, that we can see people more clearly, that we can see people the way that the Lord sees people. Because we need to remember that Jesus loves them and died for them. And that's hard to keep in mind when we've been cut deep, when we've been hurt by somebody. And we need to remember the one who hung on a tree for us and for them. You see, here's the thing. How we see people doesn't always reveal who they are. I mean, God's the only one that really knows their hearts. So how we see people doesn't always reveal who they are, but it does reveal who you are. And it will reveal where we're at when I see people as trees. When I want to cut them down, take out my axe, and start swinging. It reveals where my heart is at. And I know very well that there are people that come to each one of our lives that end up hurting us, that have cut us deeply. I don't want to minimize the hurt. I understand that. And Lord, I'm supposed to forgive them and love them, and it's hard. What you are to do is you give it to the Lord. You look up and you pray, and you keep praying, and you keep praying day by day, moment by moment. And as you do, you're going to find that the Lord is going to continually touch you, and your heart begins to change towards them. And the Lord wants you to be free, me to be free from the bad feelings, the bitterness, the angry, the envy, the jealousy that can keep us so bound up. Come out on Wednesday nights, will you? And you know what we're going to see on Wednesday nights? The way that David looked at people and the way that Saul looked at people. And Saul, who had such a potential to be a great king, used of the Lord. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He had courage. When he first became king, he, he really seemed to have it together, but he got jealous of David. And he tr- died, Saul did, a tragic death. He died a bitter man because of his jealousies and his hatred and his envy and his hardness of heart. David, we will see, never spoke poorly of Saul, and that amazes me. You know what Saul did to David? He lied to David. He tried to kill David. He chased David in the wilderness for about 12 years. David had opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. He said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And when Saul died, David, listen, David grieved for him, lamented for Saul, and spoke positively of Saul. May we be more like David, who had a heart after God. And may we be more like this man here in Mark chapter 8 who looked up and was touched by the Lord. May we be more like Jesus when they were beating him and pulling out his beard and spitting on him and he's bleeding and black and blue and hanging on that cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. As he hung on that tree, for the people that we can just see so fuzzy. Lord, help me to see people the way that you see them in your love. And so, Father, thank you.
we thank you for your word given to us and that we can look at these verses and apply them in our lives today. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus dying on Calvary's cross for our sins because of his love for us. And the truth of your word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we are 